Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. On the softer side, meet me on the softer side, softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. I'm really happy to be here. And you see, it's not true that people don't read in LA. I mean, they certainly at least go to book readings, so that's good. Um, I'm going to, uh, to read a couple of short sections from The World Without You, um, and then I'll take questions and things like that. Um, so I need to sort of explain a few things about the book so that what I, I'm reading makes sense. So the book takes place over a single July 4th holiday, over a 72-hour period uh, in 2005. And the year before, on July 4th, 2004, uh, Leo Frankel was a young journalist killed in Iraq. And he left um, two parents and three older sisters uh, and a wife and a young son. And in, over July 4th, 2005, they all converge uh, in Lenox, the Berkshires, on the family's country house to uh, have his memorial and to you know, have a, a family reunion of sorts. Um, and the things that would help you to understand what I'm going to read is that, first of all, uh, Marilyn and David, the parents, are separating. Um, and you know this because you've read the prologue of the book. But no one else knows this because uh, the parents are not planning to tell the kids till after the memorial. Um, basically, uh, Marilyn is leaving David and he's not happy about that. He didn't even want to hold the memorial. But she tends to get her way with him. And she has extracted a promise from him not to tell the kids until after the memorial. Um, so that's one thing uh, worth knowing. Um, Another thing worth knowing is something about the sisters. Uh, Leo was the youngest by a considerable number of years, and the three sisters are packed in very tight, uh, so the way my brothers and I are packed in tight. My mom likes to say that we were in diapers at the same time, um, which is a testament to how closely we were packed or how long I stayed in diapers. Um, so, and to be a little reductive and glib, um, I would say that the older two sisters, Clarissa and Lily, um, were and are successful in a kind of um, Yale, Princeton, clerk on the Supreme Court sort of way. And that Noelle, the youngest sister, uh, was unsuccessful in a kind of sex, drugs, and school expulsions sort of way. Um, and when Noelle was 25, she kind of randomly found herself uh, in Jerusalem uh, on a round-the-world plane ticket. And she comes under, she's accosted by, found by, um, 
whatever your verb of choice is, uh, by a rabbi who spends time, an Orthodox rabbi who spends time at the Western Wall, and she comes under his wing and under his sway, and she becomes an Orthodox Jew, and she meets a guy who used to be named Arthur, whom she knew back in high school, um, and who is now named Amram, and they have been living in Jerusalem for the last 11 years, and they come to the memorial too with their four children, their four boys, ages eight, six, five, and three. Um, and Lily, the middle daughter, and Noel, the one who's become Orthodox, have had a particularly difficult relationship all their lives. Uh, and basically, Noel ascribes it to the time when uh, they were in junior high school and Noel was getting a lot of trouble in Manhattan. And so the parents moved the family to Westchester on the ground that you know there is no trouble to be found in Westchester. Um, and Lily basically never forgave Noel for banishing the family to the suburbs. Um, so that's basically what you need to know for this first section. The only additional thing I'd say is that Marilyn, the mother, as part of her grieving, um, has taken to the nation's op-ed pages. And she has basically written 25 op-eds over the course of the last year. And she has become a kind of a spokesperson for and a mascot of the left. Um, and I think that's all you need to know um, for this short section that I'm going to read. And. Um, Excuse me, the section um, is from when, when Lily goes to, to Logan Airport to pick up Noel and Amram and their four boys, and they divide forces. So Lily takes Noel and the two older boys in the van, and Amram goes with the other two boys, and they're driving in relative silence, um, as things often are between them, um, from Logan Airport to the Berkshires, which is a considerable drive. It's over, over two hours. And so we're going to meet them first, excuse <coughs> me, when they're in the car, in the van, on the way to Lenox. Now in the van, a quiet settles on them. Lily can sense they're going to fight, or if not fight, then remain silent, which feels to her like its own sort of fighting. She and Malcolm don't argue much, but when they do, there's no place she'd like to be less than in the car, the endless hum of the tires, the rubber clicking over grate after grate. Noel sits beside her in the passenger seat. The two older boys are in back. Noelle is wearing a yellow blouse and a denim skirt down to her ankles, and her hair is hidden beneath a kerchief. They pass Cambridge and Newton and are headed toward Worcester. It's a straight shot west on the Massachusetts Pike. It's 4.30, and they're supposed to be in Lenox for a 7 o'clock dinner. They should get there on time if the traffic isn't bad, but now the cars in front of them have stalled, and a pickup truck is pulled over at the side of the road, an orange pylon flattened beneath it. It goes on like this for eight, ten miles, the cars proceeding at their own haphazard pace, the vehicles moving slowly around a bend, swaying like beads on a necklace. Lily turns on the radio to traffic on the threes, and the holiday is coming, so everything is log-jammed, the turnpike worst of all. She exits in Framingham, and now, off the main highway, they drive past Fayville. To the sides of the road, the grass is lined with realtor signs and little American flags pitched into the ground. In the distance is a red rooster drive through with a giant-sized, soft-serve vanilla ice cream cone perched on top. A billboard reads, when words fail, music speaks. The van in front of them says Kennedy Livestock. They pass telephone pole after telephone pole, all that wire running west. Lily glances over at Noel, who wears a mystical, faraway look, as if wherever she's been since Lily last saw her, she has left a part of herself. Aren't you going to say anything? What do you want me to say? You could say, how are you, Lily? How are you, Lily? I'm fine. Noelle is silent. 
And how are you, Noel? I'm fine too. Behind them, the boys have fallen asleep, each with his head pressed to the window, thumping against the glass as Lily accelerates as she winds around the occasional bend. She turns on the radio and music comes through the speakers. Bad music, she thinks, but at least there are other voices in the car. A sob breaks in front of them with a bumper sticker that reads, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> a deer stands at the side of the road, still as a signpost, looking at them so intently, it's as if he's trying to make out their words. Presently, the news comes on, and it's bad news, of course. Lily lives in D.C., an entire city dedicated to making bad news and watching it spread like a disease. Right now, that disease is a rock where the broadcaster announces another car bomb has gone off. Two Americans were killed and dozens of Iraqis. Occupation, occupation, Lily says glumly. You better get used to it, Noel says. I am used to it. That doesn't mean I have to like it. The car in front of them seems not to like it either. On its bumper is a sticker that says no blood for oil. But when Noel looks up at the sticker, she says, that's a stupid slogan. Lily doesn't respond. You disagree? It's stupid in the sense that all slogans are stupid. As far as slogans go, it's less stupid than most. On the radio, the, no the newscaster goes on about the war casualties. Lily hears the words Baghdad, Mosul, Basra, and dejected, disgusted, she turns the radio off. Taste of your own medicine, Noel says. What medicine? All those years the U.S. criticized Israel, and now look at the world's greatest superpower. A couple thousand people die in Manhattan, and the heavens have fallen in. Your country lectured everyone for decades, and now that it's happening here, no force is too excessive. Lily certainly isn't going to disagree about that, though she can't help adding, my country, Noel, have you renounced your U.S. citizenship? Not technically. I didn't think so. A lot of people would kill for your passport. She looks over at her sister. Just don't fight with mom, okay? The sides of the road are thick with brush, the rock formation jutting out above it. Clouds block the sun, it's getting harder to see, and soon it starts to rain, so Lily turns on the windshield wipers. Does mom send you her op-eds? She doesn't need to, Noel says. The one that ran in the Times a couple of months back? It was reprinted in the Jerusalem Post. But Lily doesn't want to talk about this, doesn't want to argue with Noel about the war, about anything having to do with Leo. But it's all she can do to stop herself. Noel voted for Bush, not just once, but twice. She voted for him even after Leo died. Lily holds all 50 million people who voted for him responsible for Leo's death. With Noel, though, it's worse. She was Leo's sister. You killed your own brother, she wants to shout. They're past Worcester, where an enormous pumpkin sits at the side of the road, as if waiting, derelict, for Halloween. In the distance is a sign for what shoots at lumber. Election day is months off, but already campaigning has begun. Little flags are staked to the side of the road with candidates' names printed on them. County legislator, county court, town supervisor, someone named French is running for something. Lily turns the radio back on, but all she gets is static. Surprise, surprise, they still don't have radio towers in the Berkshires. We're not even close to the Berkshires, Noel says. We're more than an hour away. Well, it's anticipating us. A gob of bird shit splats against their windshield. Lily turns the wipers on higher. The last time I was in Lennox, 
No one could get cell phone coverage. It's like the fucking Stone Age up there. Lily. Noelle thrust her thumb over her shoulder to where Akiva and Yoni are sitting. Watch your language. <laughs> ah, yes, Lily thinks. The fucking Stone Age. Noelle, who when she was eight, had her mouth washed out with soap by her third grade teacher. Noelle, who as a teenager used to say about some guy or another, that's the one I'm bawling. And Lily would look at her in benign amusement and say, you're bawling him, Noelle? My understanding is he's the one bawling you. Now religious Noelle, with her long skirts and head coverings, has become the language police. I'm sorry, Noelle. The dang Stone Age, the gosh darn Stone Age, the dickens of a Stone Age. How about just the Stone Age? All I'm saying is I'd like to get cell phone coverage up there. And all I'm saying is I'd appreciate if you minded your language. Okay, I'm going to skip some pages and read another section, uh, part of another section. And the, uh, the section I'm going to read from is the first time when the whole family uh, is together. They're there at dinner. Um, and I guess the one thing... Um, everyone's arrived. The one additional thing that would help you to understand this scene is to know that um, the Frankel family, as I said, implied before, is a secular Jewish family. You know, Noel has become Orthodox. And so David and Marilyn, the parents, have bought special kosher food, and they've, bought, actually, they've actually gone out and bought new dishes so that uh, Noel and Amram and their four boys can eat and so they can feel part of the family over this, you know, the memorial. Um, so here we are at dinner. It's the nine of them standing behind their seats, eight adults plus Akiva, who is supposed to go to bed with his brothers and his cousin. He's on Israel time, and it's 4.30 in the morning there. But he claimed he wasn't tired, and Noel and Amram were too tired themselves to argue with him. He's already a teenager, Noel told Marilyn. What am I going to do when he's a real teenager? So they agreed to let him stay up for another half hour. Marilyn is at one end of the table and David is at the other. Everyone is still standing, waiting for Marilyn to tell them what to do. Sit, she says, but she remains standing herself. And it's not until she pulls out her chair that everyone else does as well. She smooths her skirt beneath her. She brushes some hair from in front of her face. This is just her voice cracks. She tries to gather her composure. This is the first time we've been together since Leo died. It's not like she needs to tell them this, yet she feels as if she does, as if she has to remind them why they're here. Everyone casts their glances down, even Akiva, who is running his feet along the floor, the only sound Marilyn can hear besides the muted noise of her own gulping. She thinks of the food in the kitchen, of the meal they've prepared, and it's not lost on her that when she and David are serving is what Leo himself would have ordered if she'd asked him to choose the menu. She raises her wine glass to make a toast, but nothing comes out. Her reflection undulates in the china, coming back to her murkily as if from underwater. This past year has been awful, Dad and I, it's like we're going through this cloud cover, and then there's more cloud cover and more cloud cover, and it never stops. But David has gone into the kitchen, and soon he emerges with a gazpacho on a cart. Now he's recalling for the family a memory from when he and Marilyn were first married, living in a one-bedroom apartment on West End Avenue. When they had a dumbwaiter, they went down into the courtyard. But Marilyn can barely hear him. She's sitting at the table, staring vacantly ahead, unable to pay attention to anything he's saying. Amram and I need to wash, Noel says, and Marilyn remembers. The ritual hand-washing before they eat bread, which they do at the start of every meal. 
How quickly she forgets when the easiest thing is to remember Noel as she was years ago, when there was no washing or ritual blessings, when there were, it sometimes seemed, no meals at all, when dinner for Noel, despite Marilyn and David's objections, was a couple of hostess Twinkies washed down with a tab. Is it possible she longs for that now? Amram breaks a collar roll into three and gives a piece to Noel and a piece to Akiva and leaves the last piece for himself. Akiva leads them in the Motsi blessing and it astonishes Marilyn to listen to this. The language her grandson speaks so effortlessly, the things he knows that she never will. Noel removes a plastic bag out of which she produces a couple of turkey sandwiches and a tub of sliced cucumber. She passes out plastic cutlery and disposable plates to Amram and Akiva. What's that, Lily says. Our food, says Noel. And paper dishes, says Amram. You brought your own? Lily's wearing a bright red shirt which matches her hair and a silver chain from which dangles an amethyst. Her skin is pale but she flushes easily in the heat, and beneath the bulbs of the chandelier, color rises to her forehead. We always do, Noel says. Don't tell me you've forgotten. Lily hasn't exactly, though it startles her every time. She feels vaguely offended on her own behalf and on her parents, as if everything they do, everything they touch, is contaminated. But the food is kosher, Marilyn says. Don't you remember? She escorts Noel into the kitchen where, laid out in a row, are the chicken thighs, the caramelized vegetables, the corn on the cob, the pasta salad, the slushies. That's nice of you, Mom. It's just what? The dishes, Noel says, they would need to be kosher too. They are kosher, David says. Don't you remember? We bought new dishes. Noel is quiet. What, Marilyn says, I don't understand. You know how strict Amram and I are. Marilyn opens the fridge and shows Noel a package of Miller's Swiss cheese with the rabbinic seal of approval laminated across it. The kitchen itself would need to be kosher, Noel says. The oven, the dishwasher, the microwave, everything. Are you kidding me, David says? He's ready to chronicle the hours he and Marilyn spent cooking, the trips to the kosher butcher, ready to lay out the receipts for the dishes and pots, all so Noel and Amram and their four boys could eat in their house so they wouldn't feel excluded over the holiday. I'm sorry, Noel says. I should have told you not to bother. Well, we did bother, Marilyn says. I'm sorry, Noel says again. But what do her parents want her to do? Eat something that's not permitted? Now Marilyn is back at the table, and she's looking at everyone, and she starts to cry. Oh, Mom, Noel says, I'm so sorry. We know how hard you and Dad must have worked. I don't care about the food, Marilyn says. You and Amram can eat what you want to. What's wrong then? Marilyn glances up at David, but he's looking away. She thought she could wait until after the memorial, but she sees she can't. All her plans, her whole life, feel like folly. Dad and I need to tell you something. Everyone looks up. We have some news you need to know. Marilyn, David says sharply, you said we were going to wait. They were going to wait, but she can't do it. She can't do anything but sit here and stare at her family, even as she knows she must talk. Outside in the distance, a siren blares. <clears throat> From upstairs comes the sound of a grandson coughing. Dad and I are separating, she blurts out. You're what, says Lily? We're splitting up, she says. I'm leaving Daddy. <coughs> <Excuse me. coughs> For several seconds, there's pure silence. 
Are you kidding me, Clarissa says. David says, do you think we joke about something like this? Meanwhile, Marilyn is trying to explain things, though she can't explain them even to herself. She won't say those words that she doesn't love him anymore because they're not true. We lost our son, she says. It's ruined us. Again, they're silent and Marilyn can't stand it because the quiet is worse than anything else. But her daughters just sit there punch drunk and mute and David does too. It will be better this way, she says. Certainly she thinks it can't be worse. Noelle, rising from her chair and grabbing hold of Akiva, says, this is a grown-up conversation, and ushers him upstairs to his room. When she returns, Lily says, when did this all start? Marilyn doesn't know how to answer her. It started with Leo's death, of course, but at the same time, it has sideswiped her. You put a frog in cold water and turn on the flame, and the water heats up so slowly it doesn't know to jump out. That's what it's been like for her. Only she is jumping out. She's leaving David. You had to know we were arguing. We've been fighting all the time. It's been horrible. But it's only been a year, Clarissa says. That cloud cover you were talking about? I'm just beginning to emerge from it myself. But I'm not going to emerge from it, Marilyn says. That's what you don't understand. Again, everyone is quiet. I wake up every morning and look at Dad, and all I can think about is Leo. Jesus, girls, we were his parents. Shouldn't that be bringing you together, Lily says? I mean, it's been hard for me and Malcolm, too. But no one else is giving up, Noelle says. Is that, Marilyn wonders what they think she's doing? Because she tried. All year long, she's been trying. You could go to couples counseling, Lily says. We did, Marilyn says, and it didn't work. She looks up at David pleadingly. He's flanked on either side by Thisbe and Nathaniel. Amram is a couple of seats away. Her daughter-in-law and sons-in-law, Marilyn, thinks, none of whom have said a word, looking the three of them like trespassers on their property, though she knows this is a shock for them too. You need to explain, Clarissa says. So Marilyn tries. A few months ago, she and David went to a cocktail party up at Columbia Presbyterian. They were talking to this man, 60-ish, pleasant enough, doing his best to keep up his end of the social compact, and somehow they got on the topic of children, and he asked how many they had. I said four, Marilyn says, and at the same instant, Dad said three. And she was angry at me, David says. Livid, says Marilyn. Finally, I say, eight months after he dies, and you're already saying we have three children? And I'm thinking, well, we do have three children, and does mom want me to tell this stranger, who's probably as bored at that party as we are, we had four children, but one of them died tragically in Iraq. You've probably heard of us. We've been on TV. 20 years from now, if we're even still alive, someone asks how many children we have, am I still supposed to say four? It wasn't 20 years, Marilyn says. It was eight months. Everyone is silent again, and Marilyn is thinking, please don't do this to me. But she doesn't even know whom she's addressing or what she's begging them not to do. A beeping comes from the other room. The oven timer has gone off. She can't look at any of them, so she stares through the open door into the kitchen where a mesh bag of shallots dangles from a knob. A single onion skin pierces through the mesh, trapped like a sparrow's wing. You called one time, David tells Lily, and I remember what you said to us as we got off the phone. Make sure you get out. Be good to each other. 
but we weren't, Marilyn says, and she thinks this has been her great failure, that it will be the great failure of her life, that she hasn't been able to be good to David, that now when they should be cleaving together, they have instead been cleaved apart. Rain whips against the house, the tree branches lift over and again as if trying to fly off. Dad just wants to make things better, Marilyn says. What's wrong with that, says Lily. Because it's so damn teleological, Marilyn says. Therapy, couples counseling, it's all there to deny the truth. What's the truth, David says? That our son died and things will never be the same for us. A crack of lightning illuminates the porch. Thunder rolls in obligatorily. Besides that, no light comes in from outside. No sound either. Marilyn tries vainly to catch David's glance, but he's looking down at his half-filled plate and cutlery. Do you think Leo would have wanted this, Noel says? I have no idea what Leo would have wanted. That's the point. He's not here. Marilyn closes her eyes, and when she opens them again, everyone is still staring at her exactly as they were. She had a feeling they would object, that they tried to convince her she was being foolish, but she's saddened now, disappointed in them, disappointed in herself for wishing they'd responded differently. Now dessert is before them, loosed from its box, sitting on a doily in the middle of the table, a key lime pie, where the words kosher and parav on the discarded wrapping. A kosher key lime pie, Marilyn thinks, bought for their daughter who won't eat it. And now it seems her other daughters won't eat it either. No one is hungry anymore. They sit silently around the pie, which is beginning to bleed beneath the chandelier bulbs, and presently, Lily rises to clear the table. The rest of them remain seated, listening to Lily in the kitchen as she topples the chicken and the half-eaten corn cobs into the garbage pail. Then everyone disperses, and is just Marilyn alone in the kitchen, feeling disgusted with herself. She leans over the grill and eats the chicken thigh with her hands, the marinade dripping onto the floor, and now it's gotten onto her skirt and fallen onto her espadrilles. Okay, so I'm going to stop reading there, and now we're going to have the Q&A part of things, which is actually, for me at least, the fun part, because there are no surprises for me in the reading except for when I find a typo. Whereas, <laughs> at least in theory, and I hope in practice, you guys can keep me on my toes. So you can ask questions, uh, make comments, uh, issue accusations. Um, pretty much, you can, you can ask anything, and I will at least, and I'll answer most things. So, and just to warn you, there, I have some former graduate students in the crowd, and I'm known to call on people in workshop. <laughs> so hopefully someone will save my former graduate students from being called on, because they, they feel like they've graduated and they've done their time. And so uh, maybe someone else will go, will go first. Yeah. The book is clearly about people and families, right. but there is politics and place in the book. Right. Uh, how do you do? You feel that it's equal in what you're talking to us about? Well, yeah. I mean, that, that's a good question. I mean, it's all part of a big. It's like it's all part of a stew, right? And if you think of a bouillabaisse, it's not that I eat those very often. But um, there are a lot of ingredients that go into a bouillabaisse and if you take the mussels or whatever it is out of the bouillabaisse, you only have, I don't know, the bays or the bouilla left. Um, so it, it, it is hard to disentangle, but I guess what I'd say is that for me, for, for me, fiction is centrally about character and that um, I read, so as to get out of my own experience, 
And so my goal as a writer is to... I mean, I don't think people have to like the characters because in fiction as in life, some people are more, you know, the goods are not distributed justly and some people are more pleasant and charming in real life than others and some people in fiction are more pleasant and charming. But I want the characters to be complicated so you feel like you know them as well as the people in your own life. You know, in terms of the politics and place, I guess what I'd say is this. Um, my agent, like six to eight months ago, once the book was done, but before anyone but me had seen it, and my editor, my agent said to me, so what are you going to say when people ask you about Daniel Pearl? And I said, oh, come on. No one's going to ask me about Daniel Pearl. And so many people ask me about Daniel Pearl that I've just written an essay called The Inadvertent Romanoclef. Because there are, there are all sorts of Romanoclefs that are clearly advertent. I mean, um, Curtis Sittenfeld wrote American Wife, which is clearly about, it's so clearly about Laura Bush that they timed the release of that book for the you know, 2008 um, convention. And uh, Susan Choi's last two novels are clearly inspired by the Unabomber and by Patty Hearst, respectively. Um, Saul Bellow wrote Rallacine based on his, on his friendship with Alan Bloom. But you know, Flannery O'Connor talks about how a writer needs a certain measure of stupidity. Um, and some of us come by it naturally, and those who don't have to cultivate it. But I, I was not consciously thinking about Daniel Pearl. I'm not so stupid as to, <laughs> as to not... I'm, I'm sure that he was in the air, and you take what's in the air. But I guess what I'd say is... Um, I think I don't believe in political novels in the sense I don't believe in novels that espouse a political point of view like I think you should be able to read this book and not know what I think about any matter of electoral politics I and mean, you may be able to deduce certain things from certain stereotypes of you know a Jewish guy living in Park Slope, Brooklyn but that is something separate from the book itself and I think if you can read this book and feel like you know how I feel about any matter of electoral politics, and that is a failure of the book. Because I think that fiction has, that a fiction writer is not in the business of making judgments of any sort. And if you want to issue edicts, then you become a speechwriter, or you become a politician, or you become a rabbi, or a priest, or a sociologist, or a political scientist. Where I think that a fiction writer has to tell a story and be focused on character. You know, um, John Gardner once said that, you, that, a, that a, a character in fiction should never make an argument. And if he or she does, the writer better disagree with it. And I think the gardener's overstating things, but I think there's a certain point to that. I mean, I teach some incredibly talented graduate students. Um, I mean, they're so much more talented than I was at that age. It's, it's frightening. I would never have gotten into school. Um, but uh, I do see sometimes in their stories a sense that their allegiances are a little too clear, that you know which character they like, and there's a character who is their mouthpiece. And I think that's always a mistake. So I think if a writer feels that they're favoring one character over, over another, he or she should veer in the opposite direction. So, and I, I mean, I know I'm going somewhat far afield, but I guess to me one of the paradoxes of fiction writing is that if you want, to me the way to write the most universal book is to write the most particular book possible. Like someone said, like a critic will say, Toni Morrison writes about African-American women, or John Updike writes about, you know, waspy suburbia, or um, Tim O'Brien writes about the Vietnam War. But I don't think so. I think Tim O'Brien writes about Jimmy Cross. I think Toni Morrison writes about Sula. I think Updike writes about Rabbit. In other words, I think for a fiction writer to do what he or she needs to do, you have to focus your gaze so narrowly on the characters at hand. And then you trust that if they have political ideas, then the politics comes in through the back door. But if you're going to try to put it through the front door, then I think you end up with a book 
That's a lie. So anyone, whoever tries to write the great American novel doesn't write the great American novel. And the people who write the great American novel are ones who are not trying to do that, who are just trying to make their characters jump off the page. So, and then in terms of place, I, I guess what I'd say is that I, um, I mean, every writer has strengths and weaknesses, and I have no problem imagining people who I, I mean, writing about people who I've never met, or writing lines of dialogue that I've never heard uttered by anyone, but I do have trouble writing about places that I don't know well. So I tend to set my books either in places that I know well, or in fictional places where I can make, make things up. But at some point in this process of writing, a little too close to the end for comfort, my editor said to me, kindly, but firmly, she said, so Josh, how much time have you spent in the Berkshires anyway? <laughs> and I said, well, I said I have a friend who's actually in this room who uh, has a house in Stockbridge and I've been there a couple of times and I've, I've, I've been to the Berkshires for a few weekends and she said, yeah. She said, you better go back to the Berkshires. So I, I drove up a couple of times and like a dork with my uh, tape recorder and I talked into the tape recorder and so I got a sense of the Berkshires and I'm very envious of writers who can like you know set a book in Portugal having never been in Portugal like if my next book were to take place in Portugal I'd be spending a lot of time between now and then in Portugal that's the long way the short answer is that for me fiction is about character first and foremost and that's what interests me most and using language and story to reveal character I'd say so. It's interesting that you say that Daniel Pearl was at least not the inspiration. I would have thought it was, right. um, but I'm curious then what was the inspiration for? Yeah, um, yeah. Everyone seems to think that Daniel Pearl was the inspiration. You know, who knows? Who knows what I was thinking? Um, so I guess I mean I'd say a couple of things were the inspiration. I had a cousin who died of Hodgkin's disease in his late 20s when I was only a toddler at the t at the time. The generations of my family are very skewed. I have a first cousin who's 84 and I have a first cousin who's 23. So that will be the one thing that ever gets me into the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, but anyhow, so on my father's side of the family, the generations are all off and we, ha we have um, a family reunion every year on my father's side of the family for the Jewish holiday of Purim and we do the kinds of things that some people do on the Jewish holiday of Purim. Um, and then in addition, since we don't see each other all year, we catch each other up on what's been going on. And once at this reunion, when I was, I would say probably my early 30s, um, my aunt, the mother of this cousin, got up and she said, she started out by saying, I have two sons. And we were all quite taken aback because she'd once had two sons, but her oldest son had died 30 years earlier at that point. And she was a difficult woman, certainly, but she was not a delusional woman. She understood quite well that her son was not alive. But this was her way of saying that this was the singular event in her life and nothing would be the same afterwards. Now, meanwhile, um, my cousin's wife moved on. She eventually got remarried and had a family. Um, and the tension between my aunt and I guess you'd call her ex-daughter-in-law was remained palpable till the day my aunt died. And it got me thinking a lot about the difference. Mean, I've been very fortunate uh, not to, to have neither uh, a partner nor a child die, but it got me thinking about the difference between the two. And my sense, you know, there are always exceptions. I mean, fiction is very committed to the idea that no two people are alike. But my sense is that in general, that if you lose a partner, especially if you're relatively young, that eventually, as hard as it is, you pick up the pieces and you refashion and recreate your life. Whereas if you lose a child, that's a much, much harder thing to do. And so the book started out, as my conception of the book started out that it was going to be between 
Fisbee, whom you don't really meet in this section, but who's a very central character, the widow, who comes back with their son. She's a graduate student in anthropology in Berkeley. Um, and Marilyn, the mother. But then as I started to write, all these sisters came in. And the book, I mean, the book, any book that's worth anything, can, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's one thing for a writer to think he or she knows where he or she is going at the beginning of the book, but you better be wrong. I, I would say this pretty firmly, that if you're right, you're in some pretty big trouble. Um, so I thought the book was about that central relation. I mean, you know, most novels have a single protagonist and a single antagonist, loosely speaking. Um, but as I was writing this book, it became clear to me that these sisters were very important. And it became much more of a group book. And I think it was inspired a lot by Rick Moody's The Ice Storm. I don't know if people have read that book. It's a great book. I think it's his best book. Um, and that also is a novel that takes place over a single holiday, namely Thanksgiving. Um, and is told seemingly from multiple points of view. The point of view in that book is complicated. But I think of novels as being like relationships, that one is a rebound from the next. Matrimony took place over 20 years and is mostly in two characters, it's really exclusively in two characters' points of view. And I wanted to write a book that was more sprawling in terms of uh, vantage point. It's in many, many points of view, but much more focused in terms of time and space. I just think you need to keep yourself interested. You don't want to write the same book over and over. And I guess the one other thing I'd say about uh, inspiration is that you know, the story about my cousin, although it's very central to my conception of the book, I think it remained a little bloodless and abstract to me in that I didn't really know my cousin. I was a toddler when he died. But my father, who was quite elderly and died shortly before he turned 93, uh, was dying essentially while the book was being written. He had dementia uh, in the late stages of his life. And I think it became pretty apparent to me as I was writing the book that he was going to die before the book was complete. Um, and I obviously knew my father very well. And so I think even though the book is not about an old person who dies, I think I was channeling that impending grief in the writing of the book. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, my fiction is, is very much not autobiographical in the narrow sense in terms of who the characters are in terms of what the book's about. But I think all good fiction has to be autobiographical in an emotional sense. That you want the book to be close to you in some sort of way. That if you're not in some kind of emotional danger in writing it, then I think the reader's not going to feel anything. So I think the emotional danger was in part that is experiencing what I knew was you know, soon to come to pass. So. May I have a second? Yeah, but let, let me, let, yeah, but we'll get back to you for sure. Truth, yeah. Oh, um, I knew what jumped out of this the food. The food. And, uh -huh. and Melky's restaurant, and I was just wondering if you like to cook, I know you talked about bouillabaisse. I talked about bouillabaisse, yeah. Um, I've, never, I've, I've never made a bouillabaisse. Do you have an interest <laughs> in cooking your food, or is it in your family? Huh. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I like to cook. But I, I would not describe myself as, it wasn't like I was either going to be a writer or a chef. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I, 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 I'm good at following a recipe, but I mean, I don't improvise a whole lot. Um, I, I, mean, I like food as much as the next guy or gal. Um, I think that food is important to the book in the sense that um, it's a holiday, July 4th. And I think food is a very central thing for families. And I think the issue, I think the issue about Noel and food is very central to the book. And someone asked me, I was at an event earlier today, and someone asked me about that particular scene. And it got me thinking about, you know, I mean, I'm a parent of kids who are small, I mean, relatively small, six and eight. And uh, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of things that have surprised me about becoming a parent. But probably the most surprising thing is how invested 
perversely and problematically probably I am in like what my kids you know put inside their bodies I mean I'm away from my family for quite a number of days now and it's been hard and I've been trying to talk in, to them and Skype with them and um, my kids uh, they're not off the chart but they're they're certainly fairly picky eaters. Um, and my wife told me on the phone the other night that my daughters had both tried and liked guacamole. And I was so happy <laughs> in a way that seemed beyond all reason. Um, and, and I'm thinking about this a little bit because I, you know, I, I read sometimes at places like this and then I read sometimes at places like synagogues and JCCs. I was reading, reading at a synagogue in New York a couple weeks ago and someone said to me after I, re I read the, the second scene that I read here today. And they said, well, do you think if someone who is not Jewish or doesn't know about Jewish tradition will be able to relate to what happens between Noel and her parents about food? And I thought, oh, of course they can because, you know, parents and children manipulate each other in all sorts of ways, no matter what kind of, no matter what religion or culture you're from. And it does seem to me that food is like a, I mean, it's a very elemental kind of control thing because, um, you know, when you're a parent, well, certainly if a mother is nursing, I mean, you're literally providing the food from your body. And even if your parent is not nursing, I mean, when a child is very small, the parent is literally feeding them. And then even when they're slightly older, if they're not literally feeding them, they are setting rules about the number of treats. So I am interested in food in terms of how it works out, how it plays out between characters. Um, the Malcolm, who's a, whom you mentioned, who's Lily's boyfriend, who is a chef, is loosely inspired by a cousin of mine who's a, a pretty big chef in Boston. And I, I called him up for some questions about, you know, whether the kinds of things that would be in Malcolm's bistro would really be in a bistro, or have I, you know, mistakenly put a, a Greek salad in a bistro and screwed everything up. So, but yeah, I, li I like food, I, and I try to cook, but, so. Yeah. What was it like writing in the very recent past? And are you people have a question? What's it like writing in the very recent past? Are you are you asking that because it's sort of the book engages with political events, or you or you can still be true even if it were if we're not? Even if it weren't. So just something. Was there something? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I think. Um, and you, you're saying as opposed to to write writing in the distant past, or opposed to writing in 2012. I mean, like uh, or either. either. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I tend to think that this may be uh, this is, well, I sometimes see a book, I see a story written by a student of mine, say, or even not by a student of mine, just by a regular old person um, that takes place in the 1970s. But it doesn't feel like it takes place in the 1970s beyond the fact that at some point it, the story mentions, you know, bell bottoms or, or whatever. Um, and I sort of wonder about that. Like, why do that? In other words, I think if you're going to set a story in a particular era, it doesn't have to be, I mean, The Ice Storm is a particular example of, of a book that is so deeply 70s, it has to take place in the 70s. But there are other books that are not as deeply, I mean, as deeply about the era as The Ice Storm is, but still feel as if they belong in their era. And then, I, but I kind of feel like if you're going to set a story in the past or a novel in the past, there should be, you should feel like in the past and there should be a reason for that. And so I guess those are my own bias. I'm sure that people are going to call me on that, but I kind of feel like if there isn't a reason for it, then why not set, and if your characters feel contemporary, why set it in 2004 as opposed to 2011, unless there's something about 2004 that's very different. So um, 2004, 
and five was an important time for the book because of the Iraq War. Now, I mean, people, a lot of people have mentioned this, that, you know, books about the Iraq War only starting to come out. They mentioned my book. They mentioned um, Ben Fountain's book. Um, people know that book? The, what's it? The Long Walk of Bilib. Yeah, it's supposed to be a very good book. So, and people, people talk about how... Um, you know, things need to incubate for a certain period of time. You know, fiction is in journalism. You can't write about things so immediately afterwards. And that might be true, but I think there's also a more practical issue, which is that it takes a certain number of years to write a book. So when I started writing the book in 2007, it was pretty close to 2005. And I could have set the book in 2012, predicting that I would finish in five years. I could have been wrong. Matrimony took me 10. So I would have been smarter to set in 2017, but it feels very dangerous to set a book in the near future unless you're trying to write a book that is conceptually futuristic. And I wasn't. So I guess I wanted to sort of hedge my bets. And so I wanted it to be, feel like a contemporary book, but also partake of the Bush era. And so 2005 made a lot of sense to me. But I think, I mean, there is, it does take a while for novels to digest things, but I just think it also is much simpler than that. It takes a while to write a book. It's an unfortunate but true thing. Yeah. I wonder if you could say more about um, how to successfully write about politics. How to say, how to successfully write about politics? I'm, I'm Are you doing that? Currently reading. No, uh, but I have. Uh -huh. um, How'd you do it? Well, I thought so. Uh, no, no, I'm not. But, and I mean, I, I'm just turning the question back at you. But that, no, you're right. I should answer the question. I, I'm, I'm reading uh, Jonathan Franzen's book, um, Freedom. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Are you a friends and fan in general or not? Oh yeah, you didn't read you didn't read the corrections. Mm -hmm. um, I've read I've read the corrections. I haven't read. I'm, I'm about to start freedom. The characters speak the you know the environmentalism or, or whatever, and it happens to be stuff I agree with, but it's just like. Does it feel to you like it's coming from the character? Or does it feel to you like it's coming from Franzen? So you're just bored because you find the subject matter boring. I guess because I agree with it. And you think if you think if, if and if it was a right winger, then you would you would find that more interesting because that that would engage you more. That would probably engage me more. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, very, it's obviously very hard for me to speak about Something. a book I haven't read, although that doesn't stop many people. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, I. So you asked me whether I did it successfully. <laughs> I hope so, but it's not—it's not for me to say. Maybe I should ask your mom. <laughs> yeah, no. If you ask my mom, I'm in pretty good shape. Um, well, I guess I—I I don't think my characters make speeches. I mean, I guess the closest thing that a character makes to a speech would be that three lines of dialogue that I read tonight, where Noel is saying, you know, the U.S. lectured Israel for years, blah blah blah, but. Um, I think it's hard to have characters make speeches because I think it sounds like they're making speeches. Um, you know, and it's not that people don't do that. And I have a character in this book, this Amram, who is Noel's husband, who is a bit of a bully and a pontificator. Um, I think a writer has to be really, really careful to make sure that whatever he or she, that whatever politics come, I, mean, I guess I'm sort of reiterating what I said before, but whatever politics comes through are really, is really coming from that character, at, not just from that character, but at that moment. I mean, you know, the, there are plenty of us who might make speeches, but we don't necessarily make speeches all the time right. in all contexts. Right. So I think you have to so fully immerse yourself in your characters and in your situations, such that everything feels 
like it's true. But I think, you know, it's funny, I mean, I mentioned Tim O'Brien before, but you know, if someone said to me, are you interested in war fiction? I would say, no. I mean, I, uh, war, I mean, I'm happy to, to read a, but I, that doesn't just, I, the latest war novel comes out and I'm not the first guy at the, at the register. Um, but I think the things I carry is one of the great books of the last 30 years, because I think that the stuff about the war is so, war is so filtered through character and through what's the tragedy of that book, which is that these, these boys who are forced to act like men and what that does to their personal lives and things like that. So that's not an answer to your question. I mean, I just think that, you know. That is an answer, because that's not a preachy book at all. Yeah, but I think you, I think you can have books where there are characters who preach, but it just, it's got to feel totally true to the situation. I mean, you can't have a writer feel like, oh, I want to write about politics, so I will put a preachy character in there so I can justify having them preach. I mean, that is a contrivance. So I just think that the less planning that goes involved in that first draft. I mean, I think that's the challenge as a fiction writer. I mean, you know, a friend of mine in college wrote her psychology thesis on how adults group objects versus how kids group objects. And the adults group the apple with the banana and kids group the monkey with the banana. And that's a way of saying that kids are more natural storytellers than adults are. And I think that a writer has to teach him or herself think like a child again, albeit like a smart, sophisticated child. And so I think you can put your brain back in when you're going back to revise. But for that first draft, I think you know, it takes a couple of years not to know whether the book's going to be good or bad, but whether it's going to be a novel at all. And I think one of the things you learn over time is how to tolerate the mess. That, you know, once, I know, I mean, you don't, you, every book, I mean, you, every book could fail. And you can't rely on the fact that you've done it once before. I mean, the fraud police is always hanging over you. But I do think what makes it slightly psychologically easier is knowing that once upon a time you were in a situation where there was no way that it was going to work out. And then it did work out. And so you know that when you feel hopeless again, that you have felt hopeless before and things didn't remain hopeless. But I do think that for that first draft, you can't plan things out. Otherwise, you get what a friend of mine calls Lipton Cup of Story, where you're basically injecting your characters into a preordained plot. So, I mean, again, I can't speak to friends. And I, I did like the correction. I mean, yeah, I think that book's a little cold, but I thought it was, in a lot of ways, a very interesting book. And I, I, I'm going to read Freedom, but it's... Everyone's reading it, so I'm sort of resisted. But I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it eventually. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's the best I can okay. do. Yeah. Beth, how are you? One of your characters' names, and particularly Thisbe in this uh -huh. book. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about the story Bad behind names. her name and about yeah. Name. Yeah, people hear that question: how you choose characters' names, and how I specifically chose Thisbe's name or names in general. Um, you know, Robert Cohn, who's a writer I, I admire a lot, he has a, a novel called Inspired Sleep, which I think is a terrific novel about insomnia. Even if you're not an insomniac, it's a, it's a great novel. Um, he wrote an essay in N Plus One a number of years ago about how he was stuck on his novel, because he, his new novel, because he couldn't come up with the right names for his characters. And I think that's totally true. I mean, we all know that the name Jane is different from the name Madison, from the name Tiffany. And I, they have these studies now about how names determine people's success. It's just, it, it, it makes parenting even any more anxiety producing <laughs> than it already is. But um, I think, like, as with all things, it's all trial and error. I mean, someone said to me, How interesting, Noel, a Christian name for the girl in the book who, becomes, who grows up to become an Orthodox Jew. Um, and I think that, I, I mean, Thisbe grew up in Santa Cruz in the 1970s. 
her, when she was born, her family, her, her dad was a Marxist economics professor at UC Santa Cruz. Her mom, I believe, was a social worker. When she was born, the family made placenta soup. Oh. I had a roommate in college whose family made placenta soup and that sort of found its way into the book. So, I don't know, it just felt like the right name. I mean, I have, my wife and I have a, a naming book that we used for real humans. And then once the real humans were named, we decided to use it, I decided to use it uh, for my imagined humans. So, you know, it's, it's complicated. I think, you know, I, mean, I see stories sometimes where it's like four guys sitting around a bar, Bill, Bob, Hud, and Ted, and you think, oh, how can I keep those names straight? I mean, so you want to be able to keep the names straight. On the other hand, you can have the other, the other problem of having names that are too funky and weird, and I sometimes worry that, they're, that these names are a little too redolent of something that I'm not sure I want them to be redolent. I mean, Thisbe is the mother of Calder. Her new boyfriend is Wyeth. I don't know. <laughs> but they just felt like the right names to me. I, I can't say more than that. I mean, it's again a measure of the stupidity. I know, I mean, yet the California, that's nothing, right? You know, I mean, I should be naming them Apple and things like that, isn't that, you know? Isn't that what, what's her name? His daughter is, Gwyneth Paltrow has named Apple. Um, and the lot are named, I think Brooklyn is a very popular name now. So, but, the, but yeah, but that feels forced in some ways. But I'm sure, I mean, a lot of things that, to a New Yorker feel forced about California and then, you know, I get here and I'm embracing it all. So I'll take one more question and then, I, then I'll sign some books. Yeah. What did you learn from writing your last book? From writing the, writing the Matrimony? Yes, that maybe helped you here. In this uh, I'd learned that 10 years is a long time to write a book and I, I want to try to write this one in five. And I did. I wrote it in five. So I learned my lesson. Um, I think it's very, I mean, it's, I think it's very hard to, I, I, I think you do learn things from writing. I mean, I think you gain more experience, but as I, I suggested before, I think each book is different, and so you can, each new book is a new, each new word you write in every book is a new opportunity for failure. Um, and I, I think in some ways it does get harder, because the, the more knowledgeable you are of the process, the more you realize how, how much of a tightrope walk it is. So I'm, I'm probably now at a stage where I won't write something that's so terrible, that I'll, it would fail freshman comp. But beyond that, like, and we, we know this experience from reading writers we admire. Like you read a book and you love it and then you read the writer's next book and you don't love it as much and then you read the book afterwards and you love that one again. I mean, did they get worse and then better? I mean, I think just some books just jump off the page. I mean, I do think uh, what I've learned, as I said before, I learned to tolerate mess more. And I do think that, I mean, this, was a, this book was a different process. So I think with the struggle the challenge of matrimony was how do you write a book that takes place over 20 years and not turn it into a boring chronology? You know, what do you, what do you exclude in a 20-year book? And I reread Richard Russo's Empire Falls at the time that I was struggling with matrimony, and I thought even though it's a very different book from mine, that he did really interesting things with time. And, um, and that taught me a lot. And I think I set out to learn different sorts of lessons here. So I think with a book that's in compressed time, what you really figure out is what to include as opposed to what to exclude. So you're writing over a period of 72 hours. And you, certainly in this kind of book with as many vantage points and characters as this has, you need to filter in flashback in a way that helps inform the book but doesn't feel like you've slowed down the forward movement of the book. So I think, I guess I learned about expanded time for, in matrimony, and then I learned about compressed time for this book. But I seem not to be using the lessons because I'm moving on to different kinds of books. I think I'm the kind of guy who insists on not learning 
anything other than like you know whatever you learn from life in general. And again, I, I really appreciate people coming out, and I will sign whatever books you buy. So, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.